0: Business Power
1: Hour Welcome to the Business News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Thursday, the 10th of March. Well, this is the penultimate episode of your Power Hour. Friday will be the BPH Digest edition with no local news or markets, just a compilation of the most downloaded interviews of the week. The Biz News Power Hour will no longer be broadcast from next week. All of our standalone interviews can be found on the Biz News Radio channel on Spotify, so do go check that out. To tonight's show, editor Alec Hogg speaks to François Norquia, a man behind the development of the port of Gauteng. Uh, He believes that rail um, infrastructure, if Transnet gets its house in order, is the way to go. And uh, his development hopes to create a terminal that will be the most efficient, uh, cost-effective in southern Africa. Then our London correspondent, Linda van Tilburg, uh, speaks to Jeremy Borain. He's one of South Africa's leading publishers from Jonathan Ball Publishers, JBP. Borain will be taking up a post at Icon Books, one of JBP's newly acquired British companies in April. Then you'll hear my voice uh, as I chat to advocate Aaron Richards about the role of financial institutions in state capture. There are a lot of questions being asked about how billions could have been spirited out of South Africa over a period of years with banks only starting to close accounts in mid-2016. To see the full interview with Aaron Richards, go to BizNews's TV channel on YouTube. Let's get to your news and market report now for the last time with Nadia Swatt.
2: Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
3: South Africa is the most unequal country in the world, with race playing a determining factor in a society where 10% of the population owns more than 80% of the wealth. This is according to a World Bank report on Wednesday. South Africa is the most unequal country in the world, ranking first among 164 countries, the Washington-based institution said in a report called Inequality in Southern Africa. Nearly 30 years after the end of apartheid, race remains a key driver of high inequality in South Africa due to its impact on education and the labour market, it said. When race is considered as a factor in income disparities, the report added, Its contribution to income inequality amounts to 41%, while contribution of education is reduced to 30%. The government is considering extending the national state of disaster despite the Cabinet's promise that it would end on March 15th because it has yet to finalise alternative legislation to manage COVID-19. The government declared a state of disaster in mid-March 2020 in response to the pandemic, using its sweeping powers to impose regulations controlling the movement of people, the size of gatherings, mask-wearing in public, curfews and periodic bans on the sale of alcohol and tobacco. The issue of lifting the state of disaster has been high on the government's agenda this week and was discussed at a National Coronavirus Command Council meeting on Tuesday and by the Cabinet on Wednesday. The council was set up after the start of the outbreak and has attracted controversy as critics question its legal and constitutional standing. The cabinet is due to hold a post-meeting briefing on Thursday. President Suru Ramaphosa will face the first motion of no confidence in his leadership on March 30th. This will be the same day his cabinet's fitness for office will also be called into question. National Assembly Speaker Nosiviwe Mapisa Ngakulu announced on Thursday morning that both motions would be held then. Mapisa Kakulu added that voting on both motions would be done openly and there would be no secret ballot. She rejected a DA request that members of the executive not participate in the process because of a possible conflict of interest. In the financial news, NetBank CEO Mike Brown has added his voice to calls by senior business leaders for less talk and more action on the structural reforms needed to kickstart economic growth. Echoing the sentiments of 1st CEO Alan Pullinger, who last week bemoaned the glacial pace of reform efforts. Brown said SA needed to act yesterday to cut red tape dramatically to boost investment, particularly in power and energy. Brown said red tape was undermining President Sol Ramaphosa's surprise decision in 2021 to lift the threshold for embedded power generation to 100 megawatts. Oil fluctuated after the biggest drop since November as the fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to rattle markets. Futures in New York swung between gains and losses after plunging 12% on Wednesday to just below $109 a barrel. Oil sank after the United Arab Emirates called on OPEC Plus to boost production faster, though the nation's energy minister appeared to temper that message a few hours later. The slump came just days after prices closed at the highest level since 2008 on Monday. The JSE All Share Index was higher at 73,664. In the currency markets, the rand is slightly stronger against the major currencies at 15 rand 10 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 90 to the pound, and 16 rand 74 to the euro. Gold is trading at $2,006. A Rand will put you back around $2,011. Brent crude is trading at around $116 a barrel. The Jalte cryptocurrency basket is down 6% for the day. And Bitcoin, the premier cryptocurrency, is trading at around 592,000 rand.
2: This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Thursday, March 10th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Equity markets rallied yesterday on hopes that European leaders will take action to ease the economic impact of the Ukraine war and Citigroup's struggling to offload its Russian retail bank. Plus, we'll check in with our Paris bureau chief on how the war in Ukraine is affecting French voters as they get ready to head to the polls next month for a presidential election.
4: Ukraine is clearly figures large now because it's such a serious crisis, you know, a war in Europe on the borders of the European Union. But like all elections, a lot of it will be decided on the way the economy was
0: handled and so on. I'm Mark Filippino, and here's the news you need to start your day. U.S. and European stocks staged a big comeback yesterday. The S&P 500 was up more than 2.5%. The NASDAQ ended the day more than 3.5% higher. This came as energy prices eased. The price of Brent crude was down around 11.5%. Investors were betting that European leaders will take some action to limit the economic impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The European Central Bank meets today, and other EU leaders are gathering in Versailles to discuss an integrated response. Here's the FT's Brussels bureau chief, Sam Fleming.
5: There's- clearly some discussion now about whether there needs to be more common borrowing, common debt issuance to fund the collective response to this crisis, including the energy side of things. But there is a lot of member states uh, would argue there's actually a a lot of common debt being issued already in the EU. It's too soon to be talking about adding to that um, common debt issuance. And so the focus really needs to be on maximizing the use of existing facilities rather than trying to up new recovery funds or, or whatever at this stage. Um, I think this debate isn't going to go away. Clearly, there is going to be an ongoing push from especially some southern parts of Europe for extra EU um, budgetary muscle to be put behind the, uh, the fight against the current economic crisis. Um, but this is something that's always tended to divide the EU. So I think it, it's probably a little early to expect uh, any deal on this now. Sam Fleming is the FT's
0: Brussels bureau chief. Citigroup is trying to get rid of its retail bank in Russia, not because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's been trying to offload the consumer bank since last year. But now Russia's at war and its banking industry has been slammed by sanctions. And because of this, our U.S. banking correspondent Imani Moise says Citigroup is having an even harder time getting rid of the business.
6: Well, the only publicly confirmed potential bidder is now sanctioned. So you can't do a transaction with that bank unless you get a specific waiver from the government, which it looks like the government's going to be pretty unlikely to grant, given just the direction it looks like geopolitical tensions are going right now.
0: And as you report, Imani, Citibank Russia is not small. It's got about half a million customers. Deposits have been growing and it's profitable. Um, What is Citi going to do if they can't sell it?
6: Well, they can petition for a grant from the government, like I said, or they can find a non-sanctioned buyer. However, um, just from the conversations that we're having, it seems like there aren't a lot of people who are interested in touching Russian assets right now. That's looking unlikely. And then also just getting rid of the business, winding it down, closing up shop, um, which, of course would be an expensive process because you have loans out to consumers and you want to be paid back if you're shutting down. What motivation do you have for making good on that promise?
0: That's our U.S. banking correspondent, Imani Moise. The war in Ukraine is overshadowing the French presidential election. French voters head to the polls next month, and at the moment, the incumbent, President Emmanuel Macron, is leading the race among several candidates. To talk about where things stand and how the war in Ukraine is weighing on French voters and candidates, I'm joined by Victor Mallet. He's our Paris bureau chief. Hey, Victor. Hello. So, Victor, real quick, can you give us a little bit of background? What's happening with these elections?
4: This is uh, Emmanuel Macron, who's standing for re-election after five years in power. He... He kind of uh, swept the board at the last election in 2017. He was a surprise candidate. He said he was neither right nor left. And he basically sort of demolished the the traditional candidates of right and left in, Fran- in French politics. And he's now standing for re-election. It looks as though, from current polling, as though he's going to win again. Although, of course, nothing is certain in French or in any other politics.
0: So, Victor, Macron was going to have a big event this weekend, but then he postponed it because he was going to be too busy with diplomatic efforts to get Putin to try and stop the war in Ukraine. Um, has Ukraine and Macron's involvement been good or bad for him and, and as a candidate and uh, in the polls?
4: Yeah, no, he's always been he's always been very internationalist. He's always been very active on the diplomatic front. I mean, that is, in a way, the job of a French president. They tend not to get too much involved in, in domestic politics, and they tend to do stuff on the international stage. And he's actually tried, since he took office in 2017, to try and bring Vladimir Putin on board, so to speak. You know, he says Russia must be recognised as a great power, as a European power. He's done that all the way through his presidency, and sometimes to the dismay of some of his European neighbors and indeed uh, to the Americans, I think. But he's always said, look, we have to talk to Putin because it's the only way we're going to avoid war. And of course, that accelerated in the build up to the invasion of Ukraine and ultimately he failed. But the signs are that voters do not hold it against him.
0: So how much of this election is about Ukraine? And what are the other big issues on the minds of voters?
4: Ukraine is clearly sort of figures large now because it's such a serious crisis. You know, a war in Europe on the borders of the European Union is a very is a very big deal. But like all elections, uh, a lot of it will be decided on the state of the economy uh, and the way that the pandemic was handled, the way the economy was handled and so on. So a lot of domestic issues are coming up as well. But it is true that the, the crisis in Ukraine has kind of overshadowed a lot of the issues that other candidates, Macron's rivals, were trying to raise in this election campaign. For example, Éric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen, the two candidates from the far right, they were very much talking about law and order, about Muslim immigration to France and how terrible these things were. And that has actually been pretty much buried in in recent sort of debating because of the crisis is so severe and because the economic factors, including the ones that are exacerbated by that war, the, the high cost of Petrol and diesel, for example, the high cost of fuel for for heating homes has really affected the way people think about the issues that matter.
0: So there are a number of candidates, a few that you just mentioned, Victor. Can you give us a rundown of Macron's key rivals?
4: It looks from the polls as though his most likely uh, rival in the second round is going to be once again. Uh, Marine Le Pen of the far-right uh, Rassemblement National Party. She was his rival in uh, 2017. He beat her then. He is forecast to beat her now, although it's not certain, uh, and he's forecast to beat her by a narrower margin than he beat her last time at the moment. But the the war in Ukraine has actually done some damage to the other candidates, including initially Marine Le Pen, because she and the other far-right candidate Uh, Eric Zemmour, and the far left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, who are all quite high in the polls, were all basically sympathetic to Putin. And indeed, they've had to kind of rapidly backtrack in in most cases to sort of uh, explain how they're not really Putin lovers
0: after all. Victor Mallet is the FT's Paris bureau chief. Thanks, Victor. Thank you. Before we go, Amazon announced a 20 to 1 stock split yesterday. The move is meant to boost the stock price in the face of heavy operating costs and concerns over staff retention. Amazon's last stock split was in 1999. In another effort to boost its stock price, Amazon also announced yesterday a $10 billion share buyback. Investors seem to like all this. Amazon shares jumped more than 10% in after-hours trading.
2: Francois you are rapidly becoming our go-to guy when it comes to anything to do with the rail network in South Africa. Not surprisingly, you've got a big vested interest here in it. You're the developer of Port of Gauteng.
7: That's correct. And we can do a magnificent rail park. And uh, yeah, so if rail can work, we can also do much better than what we'll do if rail doesn't work. So yeah, we would hope rail can uh, be what it should be in South Africa.
2: Now, I've seen Port of Gauteng on the way to Durban. It's uh, just outside of the uh, Foslurus area. Why is it positioned there?
7: It's the entry point, exit point of Gauteng. So if you, if you go out, it's the, f- uh, the tunnel where all the roads get together and then it goes on to the N3. And if you come in, it's what we call the champagne position. The N3 is the stem and then the cup is where the, all the people live up to Lumbumbashi. And this is just before it splits because there's, there's not much between Durban and Joburg. It's, it's the pie between the tank and the, and the, and the, and the garden. And we're just there where the garden starts. And just down the road
2: from you is Tambo Springs. Now you've been tackling them. I haven't been
7: tackling Tambo Springs. I've mm -hmm. been tackling the Gauteng Department of of Roads, Gautrans, for activities that they've done there which we don't think complied with uh, with law. And we got an interdict stopping them from building the off-ramp to Tambo Springs. It's a heck of a, a job. How long did that court action take? It took two years and six months since we wrote them the first letter. Uh, We wrote to them the 1st of August in 2019. We got the interdict on the 4th of February 2022. It cost 2 million rand and 30 months later.
2: And you did that because? I did that
7: because uh, they, they, uh, uh, they messed up the EIA. A lot of things were left out. They never dealt with the petrol pipe. Petrol pipe. The, the the environmental consultants didn't even know the petrol pipe existed. There's a wetland next to the N3 there. It got declared a synthetic wetland when it's not a synthetic wetland. The connection road in Tambo Springs was in the middle of a sensitive floodplain. They they stated in their own uh, EIA when they amended the EIA because seven out of the eight properties was left out of the EIA. So. Uh, That happened, I don't know. So
2: why would they be so stupid as to do that? It it sounds like a really dumb approach where you got all these these things that were wrong with it, which the courts have now agreed with you on.
7: It's a good question. You know, we we look at it and, as I said, there's 15 properties which you need to get an EIA on. Uh, Eight of them was originally left out. Seven was put in. They left the 15th uh, one out. There's a, a, a wastewater treatment plant at that Total Filling Station. The new road was going to build right over it. That wasn't disclosed to Total. It wasn't disclosed to the tenant of the of the, the p- petrol filling stations. They didn't know about the, the petrol pipe. They, they know.
2: How big was this development going to be?
7: It's 1,500 directors, the whole total Tambo Springs, if you take all three landowners together. It's a massive thing. It's a 50 billion rand development that they planned. And they, they
2: didn't do the basics right. Why? Didn't. Why? Is it because they thought they could find another way to get the
7: approvals through? I wish I knew. Or arrogance, we government, we big. Uh, just do it. We don't need to tick the boxes. It's for the the general public, private developers that must tick the boxes. Nobody caring, not, the the, the EIA was done by Geltrans, maybe those officials isn't as caring as a private developer, but it was a, a whole spectrum of jokes, not giving proper notice, not having proper public participation, not knowing who the owners are, when they amend it, they had to amend it again. They left properties out. When I admire
2: what you did because we have these rules in South Africa, these laws, but not too often are they applied. And in this case, you said, no, no you know, you've know, got a commercial interest in this, so that's fine. We know you've got a vested interest, but at least you applied the law. But I actually wanted to find out from you about the the wonderful statements that we're hearing from our president in the State of the Nation address, we've got this third-party nail ret- uh, rail network that's starting. In other words, third parties can get onto South Africa's rail network. They can start using it. That we desperately need, especially right now when the commodity boom is on, to try and get uh, better efficiencies going through. You've been looking at this in a, a lot of detail, and I'd like to know from you whether our President Ramaphosa is going to be able to deliver on these promises
7: i don't think it's up to them it's still a big question how much money you're going to have to invest and then is it really going to work you know you you put money in building a terminal you put it buying the trains and then transnet falls off the wagon and you're still running it on transnet's uh, uh, railway lines and the the guys that's looking at it are nervous they, it's uh, it's big decisions to be made. It's a lot of money to be invested. And they, they, they've seen this and they speak to us about it. And Durban Harbour is also going to have some private sort of form of privatisation or joint venture stuff like that. So the big boys are looking at it. But uh, What are they nervous about? Is it really going to work? You know, is it, uh, we spend all this money because it's never been, what is the regulator going to be like? You know, what if we got a dispute? It hasn't been done. It hasn't been tested. You know, it's like it's, it's 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 new territory, and then like anything else, new. In especially, you know, is there going to be a clawback? Is the government going to want too much? Is the government going to have an open hand and allow more freedom? Let the private enterprise price run it. Totally from A to uh, B. I think they'd be much happier if that line gets privatized and some private guys buy it and they are out of government hands and private guys can run Durban the Harbour. They they nervous about the the sort of 50-50 approach and is it going to become 70-30 or 30-70? And you know it's never been done, so they they they're cautious in it. But at least. Uh, the The blood is flowing there. There's inquiries there in Port of Gateng. On Friday, we had a, a, a plane flying up and down along the railway line and on the provincial road and on the farms around. So somebody are looking and somebody is surveying and seeing, and there's agents that are now interested. Before it was quite quiet under COVID, but uh, yeah, you can see a page has been turned and there's some uh, some blood flowing. So it's it's a relief.
2: So the idea here is if you get the the railway lines working again – then, from your perspective, that is you perfectly positioned for that to be a hub. Yeah, uh, a
7: terminal. We can put a very efficient terminal there where you can load off stuff very quickly and very uh, cheaply. So we, we think we will become the number one container up in Southern Africa uh, if it works. Then you don't need to put everything on road. The minerals and whatever can be come to that area, be stuffed in the container, go down with the container, the container can be loaded off there. We've got 2.2 kilometers of flat land, straight. You, you, because you've got such a blank canvas, you can design something that works very productive. And two of the, the boundaries, two of the other three boundaries are provincial roads. And the national road is just down the road, and the petrol pipe is there. the data pipe is there. The gas pipe from Secunda to Alberton is just up the road. So there's a lot of uh, possibilities how many How many
2: trains are actually running along that uh, very rail line at the moment? What's About, very little
7: uh, Two a day in one direction and two a day in the other direction. And and what
2: were they at the peak?
7: Um, Those are container trains because there's no more jet fuel train. There used to come a jet fuel train every day. It's obviously not demand at ORT for. And then there used to be two car trains in each direction. The car trains still come. That's the video I took for you in in Howick, in Nottingham Nottingham Road. Road. Mm. But it now detours to Central Rand and then then, uh, hook up with a diesel locomotive. Because past us, somewhere between Germiston and Carfontaine, the the wires have been stolen. So now the car train's shortest route is past us. It's now going quite a, a loop to the far east end to get to Carfontaine because the wires haven't been replaced since uh, COVID.
2: I, I remember when uh, Porsche Derby, the CEO, was doing a presentation, I think to the mining in Derby. She said that there was about five kilometres of. Uh, of cables that were being stolen a day at that point. And is this what you're talking about, that the cables have gone and A, it must be very difficult to replace them, but secondly, what does it do to the ability for these third-party people who are coming onto the railways to to use efficient uh, trains?
7: I don't know why they couldn't fix that link because – Next to us, they also steal the cables. Once they stole it twice in one week, just as they replace it, they stole it. They got the eyes now, those eyes on the line. So if the line gets uh, uh, stolen or cut, then the train driver at least can can see this, like cat eyes at night. And uh, it still gets stolen uh, there by us, but then it gets fixed the same day or the same night and the trains go again. Why the car trains... Don't come part of Port of Gauteng to Carfontein, which is the shortest route. I don't know. After the lockdown, when I saw the cars didn't come anymore, I one day drove to Carfontein. And they told me now it's taking the deed to and boom. And it seems it's still going uh, that route. So before uh, lockdown, we used to get six trains uh, in this time of the year, six container trains that went up to 10 container trains in October in each direction. Now it's two, so it's a third of what it used to be. And the N3 is fuller, so it's not that we import or export less, mm-hmm. it's just Transnet has lost two-thirds of the market share of containers before COVID, between start of COVID and now in two years. They've lost two-thirds of... of it. So they must also... They, they used to make a loss on that line in any case because they had to subsidize it from 2014 onwards when they angered the truck guys or scared the truck guys and the truck guys started competing. Now it must be a financial disaster uh, uh, for them. For the taxpayer, for, really, yeah, because, because the
2: taxpayer's got to put it in there. Yeah,
7: you know, because it made a loss, and now it's running at a third of its capacity. The car train must now go on a loop to go about it. There's every now and then a steel train from Newcastle that used to come to uh, Steel's yard there near Tambo Airport. And then th- there was the Otto. And so on, so whatever. And then there used to be a jet fuel train every morning mm. coming. So at the moment, it's just the two container trains a day in each direction on average.
2: So when the third parties start using the rail, presumably they would need the electricity as well, or they're going to be running it on diesel ah. because they aren't. From what you're saying, the cables, the electric no, cables, no, but they, they they
7: fix it and when they you know what a cost it is.
2: But that must be horrific, the cost. It's
7: horrific. That's why somebody, it's what I said to you, I don't think Porsche, Derby and, and the staff has got the ability to stand up against organized crime. And uh, I think if it, it's too big an organization. Maybe the small oak also can't. If I say small oak, the smaller guy. Transnet has got 55,000 employees. The netcore line might employ 1,000 people if you privatize that. And if you've got a company with 1,000 employees, and it belongs to, say, a Bitvest of this world or an imperial or somebody like that without, you know, not that they uh, are looking, but I mean a private enterprise. You had a, a Brian Joffe-type guy, uh, Mark Lamberti-type guy on, on top of it. I'm sure they could have done something about the security and be more focused and stuff like that because we, we need it. Durban can't be Durban one day and bring all those things into Joburg with just by road. You know bayhead road is clocked and uh, it it needs to come out by rail so if we're not going to bring it out by rail where are we going to bring this stuff from because you can't take it to to Mm. or to cape town what what you
2: what you've said Francois, is certainly uh, it makes a lot of sense and surely everybody knows it uh, especially the people at transnet haven't they put something on the table and the government as well put something on the table that, that can work or will work or are you dubious that this third party's use of the rail is we yeah, we're gonna not happen?
7: gonna be the operator. So the, the guys we are talking to, they they'll buy the land, the rail park from us because I don't think they would want us to be the, the operator or the landlord. So they are talking to the the transnet and the authorities. We're not first hand involved with that, but the feedback that we're getting is we need to see. We need to see. There, there's lots of risk before we commit.
2: You also pointed out to me, as you said earlier, uh, that train at Nottingham Road. Uh, you, what were you doing there, <laughs> having a look at it and a, a little video that you you. I filmed. stop
7: over at Nottingham every now and then. Uh, I don't drive just all the way to Belito when I go down there and whatever. And yesterday morning, or Tuesday morning after breakfast, I just had a feeling. Just go and drive through that industrial part of Nottingham Road towards Moy River. And, uh, you know, Nottingham Road, the railway line goes through the town. If you come from the one side to where the spa and whatever's the railway line sits there, and there the train was stuck. It just stood still there. And I went to the spa and bought stuff, and I saw it was still stuck. And then I drove along. I couldn't get to the locomotives, close to the locomotives, and I saw they were electric locomotives, and there wasn't load shedding in Nottingham Road. And it was just stuck there. And I took that video, drove around, did some things, I had some coffee, and an hour later it was still just standing there. Uh, I read from newspaper articles that it takes them now 36 hours to bring a train from Durban to Joburg, where it used to be 18 hours. And it's it's that kind of stuff. And to me it's now time for, for, for Porsche and Airbnb and Transnet to break up Transnet for the sake of the South African economy. It's, it's too difficult for an SOE and people that don't have skin in the game to run it. It needs to be run by a consortium of transport guys or mineral exporters or importers or logistics companies. That it, It's not working and it's getting worse and worse, even though all the good announcement, the, the, the talk is this way and the, the action is, is that way.
2: So public-private partnerships, in your, in, in your opinion, are not going to deliver what is required?
7: I think just, you know, it's a difficult thing to run. Uh, now if you've got a public-private partnership said, the guys are nervous, who is going to call the shots, and what have we got a dispute? There, there, there's an elderly gentleman that's an engineer that specializes on this thing. And he advised to everybody, take full control. You know, or don't you know, get involved. Don't get involved. You're going to have trouble with Transnet in five years' time. They're going to change their mind. They're going to change their policy. The government changed their policy, and you sit in the middle. Get full control, or don't get involved.
2: What about the fuel line? I know this is something that's also very close to to your heart. You just explain to us. There's there's uh, what the fuel that comes from Durban yeah. to.
7: It goes to, to Jemison Park there by Heidelberg, and then it goes into various directions to uh, uh, L Road and to Langlochter and to Watloo, as far as I know. And it's a big pipe, in it's, other words, yeah, with, the, with fuel that comes through it. Fuel Diesel comes petrol. through it and, and whatever, and it comes through the, the bottom of my land on the highway park. It follows the, the N3 alignment. Is it underground? It's underground. And one place on my land there's a, like a control room whatever, where there's a leak. They come with a truck and they move these co- concrete slabs and they, they close the valve so that uh, if there's a, a breakage in the pipe further down, it's like a stop valve. Now, you, So you, that's why I'm aware of it mm-hmm. and there's a servitude right on the boundary of my land to the N3. But when I drove up from uh, Nottingham Road one day in August 2020, just before the Tugela engine plaza, I just saw this fountain of, uh, of, of uh, liquid coming out the ground, nine o'clock in the morning. And I got such a fright and said, this must be the petrol pipe gushing out stuff. I saw this petrol pipe is supposed to shut down when there, there's a leak. This is nine o'clock in the morning. Surely they break into this thing at night, and this thing... Uh, who breaks into it? Breaks into it. I don't know who breaks but into it. But they're crooks, in other crooks, words. They're yeah. stealing, stealing yeah. petrol. Yeah, stealing petrol. From the line. From the line. I don't know. And the reason why I came back, one of the properties next to the port of Gauteng, there was a raid the night before. And people was arrested for stealing fuel. There was four tankers parked with crude oil. That one. So I went to, my, my security personnel phoned me and said, there's a raid. And I thought, let me get back there. whatever." And when they raided it, one of these tankers fell over. So these guys stole the crude oil somewhere and it was in four 34,000 liter tankers and they parked it on one of the properties next to port of Gerteng. and as the, the the forces that be it was quite an operation with helicopters and whatever the one fell over and it leaked when i got there there was dritz was the company that did the spillage control they were on site 25 skips where they took the contaminated soil and stuff like that and when I drove back, where that fuel spewed out, there was the same type of plastic orange fence around, and it said dritz. So I knew this was a, f- a fuel spillage. A few months later, when I came back, on the right-hand side, if you drive towards Joburg, just about 20 k's before the Bachville off-ramp, there was a major uh, uh, spillage. Massive area cordoned off with this orange sort of uh, tape, and this had spill on it, I think, not... Dritz. That site is still standing there, Alec.
2: The same, same as it site. was. same site.
7: They've taken the soil, put it in heaps, and then they put plastic over it. Now the sun have burned the plastic to pieces. The rain has come inside the plastic, now, raining the, the 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 petrol or whatever, the diesel. It seems like it was diesel there because the soil is black, 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 and spilling it along the N3. And I've sent you the video. And if you stand there along the N3, you can now see as it rains, this path of deafness, where there's nothing, where it's just the, the petrol has killed everything, or the diesel has killed, killed everything, along the N3 is just continuing, it's gone into the stormwater drain underneath the N3, it's, it's killing the, soil, the the plants and whatever on the other side of the N3, this happened on 26 of October 2020, the site is abandoned, There was no security that stopped me filming. There was like a portable toilet. There was like security out. If there was a security guard, he he never came out. The site is abandoned. It's not rehabilitated. The one where I saw the the fuel coming out in August 2020, that's not rehabilitated yet. The soil is still there. I drove to Walkerville the other day. I go down from South Gate towards the Lido Hotel in that direction on the left end of the road. It's the same situation. That's where the pipe comes from uh, Jemison Park to to Langlachte. Heaps of sand and plastic that's burned to pieces. So Transnet doesn't seem to rehabilitate these sites. They just leave it. It's shocking because are they now complying with the environmental conditions? What is the environmental... How do a company like Transnet forget about a site like that? How does it go off the radar that there's no more security, no more personnel, that the notice that says stay out of the site is uh, off? If you go on Google Earth, i send you the pin. You see this black area. You, you see the contamination, hundreds of meters by hundreds of meters, just left there. And as it drains now, there's a river about half a kilometer from there. It's going to hit that river sooner or later. It just seems that there's no, I don't know, what do you call it? Because transit's
2: the, too big. Is this one? I just, no just think it's too it?
7: big and nobody cares. And then the next problem and the next problem. And then they forget about this thing and they're they so overloaded that nobody goes back and says, was this thing cleared? Was it done? But you know, they're going to have a problem because there's conditions in the EIA. NEMA makes provision for private prosecution. So if the Green Scorpions not prosecute them, private guys might step in. And and who is the responsible person at Transnet that's actually going to be prosecuted, that's going to be in the box with the company? Is it the head of the pipe division or is it uh, the head of Transnet? Is it Porsche? But it seems nobody cares. I, with my own eyes, have seen four of these sites. That can't be the only four in, in the country. And that big one on the N3, as you drive from, from Escort towards Lady Smith on the right-hand side, about 20 k's before the Berg offram, is a shocker. It is absolute, it's dead, it's black, dead, there's nothing. And there's tons and tons and tons of soil being stored there, plastic disintegrating.
2: So it, it sounds like if this was, say, in a river, or if it was in a area that was a built-up area, there would be immediate attention on it. Yes. In this case, you've observed it with your eye. Uh, clearly, Transnet is falling down in numerous ways on this. is Your suggestion on how this could be addressed and be avoided in future is to break up Transnet into smaller pieces or... or
7: manageable partized? pieces. And, and with people with skin in the game. Not, not And I, I've got nothing against uh, an official, somebody that works for the government, but somebody that's got shares in that business, that's put 20 million, or somebody, there's a big boy that's put 200 million rand in this company, and this happened, his share price is going to go from 200 million to 100 million, that will go raving mad, screaming, shouting, and not just explaining. The problem with officials, they explain what happens. But nobody's share price drops from 100 million to 50 million, and feel it, and are raving mad and, and enforcing the issue. There, there's a reason why certain capitalism works. Capitalism can be bad, but there's a boss in there, an owner that's invested money in there, and his share p- uh, value drops from 100 million to 50 million because of this, and they have to pay this fine. No explanation is going to be good enough for him. He's going to make sure it works, and that's what I think we need. Somebody that's got skin in the game investors that put 500 million in this company and 500 million in that company, and that will go raving mad if things like this happen.
8: I'm Nolan Holberg, and I have the well known publisher of non fiction books in South Africa, Jeremy Barain, who's at Jonathan Ball Publishers, in the studio to discuss his move to London, where he will be launching a new imprint of icon books. Hi, Jeremy. Highlander. Can, can you just tell us how it all sticks together? Uh, Icon Books, News24, Jonathan Ball Publishers, and you know what are you launching now?
9: Right. Okay. So in brief, uh, Jonathan Ball Publishers bought Icon Books just around two years ago. In fact, upon lockdown, but it was obviously a, a purchase that took some time. And the moment we it was acquired by Jonathan Ball, we looked at synergies and it's part of a growth plan for Jonathan Ball. And about nine months ago, it was decided that we would, well, I was offered the the opportunity to go and join the Icon team and launch a Jonathan Ball imprint. Icon has, you know, it was privately owned until we bought it and has been in existence for something like 20 or 25 years so it's a well established albeit small uh, london based publisher
8: and are you looking for the stories cuz it's all non fiction um, and often a political story of people here or south africans or what what are you looking for
9: i mean for those of you who know the jonathan ball imprint you know i think we're best known for, for south african politics current affairs biography although you know by no means do we limit ourselves to that in taking the imprint broader to the uk and beyond i can't simply publish south african stories there isn't the commercial market you know globally for that so my brief you know, is really to look for political or current affairs or biographical stories that's beyond South Africa. So it may be uh, English or, or, in fact, broader than that. I think something to understand about the, the icon publishers is that 40 percent of what they publish is exported out of the UK. So 60 percent, they have 60 percent domestic sales. And so they've got a good footprint in the US and Europe. Um, Australasia so you know really looking for books that might sell sort of anywhere in the world mm. uh, as opposed to to South African that said you know I think I don't want to let go of, of you know Jonathan Ball's um, roots in Africa so I do want to acquire and publish some African stories as it were perhaps history biography current affairs uh, so retain something of that.
8: If we look at the books that you have been publishing, can we just look back on that, the period that you've been in South Africa, because you've been doing this for a long time. The most yes. recent one was Pretoria Boy by Lord Peter Hayden.
9: I mean, you know, whenever anybody asks me what have we been publishing, my my mind goes blank because there's so many books that come out in every year, you know. So we, we do do sort of, you know, 30 or 40 books a year at Jonathan Ball. So uh, Peter Haynes' story of his life in South Africa or, and his connection to South Africa is one we published last year in September, a Pretoria Boy, that's right. Uh, and in fact, there was an interesting sort of publishing story to that in that it's the first book where icon books acquired rights from us. So, you know, a company that we owned then decided to, to publish it in the UK so there were two editions. There was the Icon edition in London, and then the, the Jonathan Ball edition in in South Africa. And so that was a yeah, that was one book from last year.
8: So how would they differ? You know, I've noticed just in children's books, reading for my children, that when you publish a book in America, you don't talk about the philosophers, don't you talk about the sorcerer? Um, does it differ? Does, do the covers differ when you publish in South Africa and when you publish in the UK?
9: A clear difference between those two editions is that in the UK market for a book of that nature, you would release it as a hardback. Oh, um, yeah. Whereas in South Africa, there isn't much demand for, for hardback um, for obvious pricing reasons. So we launched ours as what we call a trade paperback, which is the large size Paperback, which is what most South African publishers do with new releases. It's a it's a it's a trade paperback. So that's one difference. And you know, so I think any publisher in any market is always trying to has to come up with sort of best practice in terms of those decisions, whether it's pricing or format. But essentially, you know, the information was the same. I mean, it's the same text inside. But I think uh, it's quite an interesting departure when you have two publishers looking at the same text and what requirements they might have. So, you know, for example, in Peter's book, there's quite a long court case that took place in the UK. And for South African readers, that might not be as interesting as it, as it would be for British readers. So, you know, my counterpart in the UK sort of said, no, no, no let's keep all of it in. Let's not cut any of that. Uh, so, likewise, for legal checks, you know, the law is of diff- the law is different in the UK as it is to South Africa. So we had to have two legal reads. So there, you know, there are all these kinds of considerations when you collaborate on on a book like this.
8: I've always wondered, also, how does it differ? How many copies can you sell in South Africa versus? overseas and versus in the UK. Do you sell far more copies of a book of somebody like Lord Hayne than a South African?
9: I haven't looked at the UK sales. It's interesting, you know, so obviously with my move to the UK, I've been taking an increased interest in what sells in the UK. And what I have found, and, you know, this is it's a very general point, is that many books sell the same quantities here as to the UK, but obviously your bestsellers in the UK do far better. So, for example, you know, under this sort of COVID time where sales have been quite dampened down, it's quite difficult to sell a book. The sales quantities can be very similar, and that's as small as 1,500 or 2,000 or 2,500 copies here and and in the UK. But as I said, if something takes off, you know, it'll be selling – Ten or fifteen thousand copies a week in the UK, whereas here it probably just gets up to a thousand copies a week. So your bestseller opportunities are that are that much better. It's just a bigger market.
8: So is that what you're gonna? That's why you have to, to go and look for the bigger market.
9: Uh, well, uh, you know that that's that that's always the dream, isn't it? I mean, every publisher needs to try and find a bestseller. And easier said than done. But yes, one is always trying. And uh, uh, the publishing model is, um, you know, where you have a a quiver full of books that you go out each year with. And uh, really, uh, I would argue that profitability depends on getting one or two bestsellers. If you don't have them, it's it's quite hard to, to make your budget and be profitable. So, yeah, that is the idea. Whether I'll achieve that uh, remains, very much remains to be seen.
8: And do people always come to you with books? Or would you at the moment think, oh, there's an interest in Russia. Maybe we should publish a book on Putin. Or how does it work?
9: Um, so, yeah, it well, takes a bit of explaining. I mean, we do um, a, a lot of our own commissioning of books, which is exactly that. It's, you know, we spend time thinking what would be of interest to the market you know this last book worked what about this or looking to see who might make a good you know a biography or unauthorized um, biography so we we do a lot of active commissioning in our south african operation and i hope to bring some of that to, to the work i do in the uk a big very big difference between the uk and south africa is that the uk has a lot of agents uh, literary agents so you know in some respects adding that extra dimension into the sort of into the sandwich, as it were, the uh, literary agents. I mean, they spend a lot of time working with authors, coming up with concepts. So as an editor or a publisher in the UK, you can simply work with agents and sign up books. But I I will have to do some of that. Um, But I also would like to Sort of take some of the some of what I've learned in the South African market, which is a far more sort of active commissioning type of uh, publishing. So, for example, you know, your example, war breaks out and you know, Russia attacks Ukraine, there's a global result out of that. And you know, what might sell two years from now because you can't publish a book, you know, tomorrow. Uh, you need to find someone, they have to write it, then you have to publish it. So it's trying to kind of find an idea that won't have the world moved on from in, in 18 months or two years' time.
8: Yeah, like Zelensky, who was sort of like almost nobody. And now, you know, he might have this iconic status that might translate into years ahead or whatever. Are there any English politicians that are obvious targets for you, Boris Johnson? (laughs)
9: <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, we did discuss Boris Johnson, but I guess it was at a time when, you know, he was taking a bit of a beating and uh, uh, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I think some of my English counterparts were wondering whether he would be around. Um, exactly. But he seems to be weathering the storm. And uh, But no, I mean, at this stage, no. You know, I think I need to get there, and I'm not going to be rushing to publish uh, British Politician's Their their biographies. My sense is that biographies of British politicians don't sell particularly well. I might be wrong, but I I don't think they I don't think they seem to have the you know, they don't seem to be adored by the public. (laughs) So I don't know if that's an area I'm going to to leap into.
8: I think uh, politicians that are adored are a really small bunch of people. Um, in, that, in that respect, I think South Africa yeah. is a bit luckier. Can I ask you then, is there a favorite book that you had? I mean, the one of Fonseil Slobbert is one of the few that I saw you come, came out and advertised and because your father knew Fonseil Slobbert. Was that one of your favorites?
9: Uh, you know, it's difficult. It's kind of like asking someone who their favorite child is because as a publisher, You grow attached to many authors and projects and books. So it would be unfair to sort of say, well, you know, this was my favorite book. And I think every book you publish, there's different reasons why you may enjoy working on it. In some, it might be the text and some, it might be this, you know, the sales because it sells so well. But I think it's, it's sometimes it's about the relationships that you form with authors over a long period of time. So I've, you know, really enjoyed working with Johnny Steinberg. Um, I've really enjoyed working with Mark Gefisser, I've worked with Justice Malala, uh, Margie Orford. So, you know, these are authors that are in it for the long haul. And and I've really enjoyed sort of being something of a midwife to at least some of their books. Um, so, yeah, so I can't say that there's a single book that that stands out.
8: So your first appearance in the UK would be at the London Book Fair. I'm so glad that's back. This, you know, with COVID now, the UK is basically ignoring COVID now.
9: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's in the second week of April, and uh, that is that is what I do when I touch down is attend that. And I have attended many times in the past, but obviously this is in a new guise. So it'll be a, It's just good. To, opportunistic timing really that it's on when I get there so I can touch base with a lot of sort of colleagues in the industry and people in the sort of uh, sales sides of things I think it will be a slightly different fair in that a lot of the foreign attendees are unlikely to come it seems so it'll think it might be a slightly slower fare uh, you know it, it, years ago 2007 I think South Africa was the country of focus or 2010 maybe um, at the London Book Fair and the volcano came and so I think there were only about sort of a quarter of the usual attendees and apparently it's some people's favourite book fair ever because all their meetings Mm -hmm. got cancelled and they got to sit around and chat and network in a much more sort of thorough way Uh, but yes uh, I will be there
8: just one last question, um, so Jonathan Bull publishes mm. it's continuing in South Africa as it always was
9: absolutely yeah 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 i mean there's no there's no there's no change to that, and you know I have a successor who's been appointed um Ulfia, who's quite brilliant, and so we've been doing a sort of a handover over these sort of January to march um, and the, you know the team is sort of fit and flourishing and uh, and has a a really great publishing program for the rest of this year and beyond. So yeah, absolutely, there's no, there's no change there at all.
1: State capture is not possible without this, the, the proceeds of crime flowing through the bank accounts, often destined uh, for bank accounts and companies outside of our borders. Mm. Now, take us to Ian Stinton. Who is he? He did testify before the state capture inquiry. In relation to what exactly?
10: All right. So I just want to pick up on one point that you said, which is which is important, is that the threshold for reporting is very, very low. If the banks even so much as suspect or should reasonably suspect that um, that the proceeds of illicit funds are coming into their accounts, they have a duty to report. So that threshold is very, very, very low. Um now picking up on Ian Sinton. Ian Sinton was um Standard Bank's legal counsel. I don't think he's he's in that position anymore. No,
1: he's retired,
6: yeah.
10: Yeah, yeah. Um so he was called to the Zondo Commission to give to give evidence. Um unfortunately, there was very little by way of explanation in terms of the processes that Standard Bank actually undertook. Um in Canvassing and looking for red flags in these in these transactions, because it's quite obvious that you know they, in in certain c- circumstances these accounts that were used to launder money were open for three years, four years, five years without any interference from Standard Bank or any of the regulatory authorities. Now we would have hoped at the Commission to see some evidence or to hear an explanation as to why Standard Bank did not pick up. Um, on those on those red flags. But that evidence was not forthcoming.
1: Mm. So I was listening to Mr. Sinton's evidence this morning, and he came across very comprehensively in terms of the processes and procedures that financial institutions mm. like Standard Bank are supposed to undertake. And he speaks of a constant monitoring of media reports uh, by an internal team and using Thomson Reuters, um to look at any adverse media reports that are coming out about their clients. And he says there is a team that is dedicated uh, to looking at suspicious transactions with regard to using these particular algorithms. He didn't expand on what algorithms these are. Um, But it seems all of that um, didn't really work, did it?
10: Well, either it didn't work or it did work. And the implication of that is that Standard Bank would have turned a blind eye to money laundering. Mm. I mean, I'd like to just look at a specific example because I think that'll be be helpful. Um, Let's just look at the Regiment's McKinsey situation because Standard Bank was involved there. Now, we all know that what happened is between 2012 and 2015... And
1: this is a transnet. This is a
10: transnet, yes, thanks for that. Um, Between 2012 and 2015... Um, McKinsey was awarded numerous, I think it was eight, contracts by Transnet that totaled in value at about $2.2 billion. McKinsey then partnered with Regiments as their empowerment partner and paid to Regiments 30% of that $2.2 billion. From there, 55% of that 30%, 30%. was laundered out of Regiments' accounts to a variety of other accounts. Um, Primarily, uh, I think, if I recall correctly, most of those funds went to um, an entity called Homex, which was a shelf company. Um, And from there, the majority of funds went into an entity called Bapu Trading, also a shell company. And from there, the money went cold, disappears, as happens with with money laundering. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we know that the money started flowing into the Homex account in about 2014, and we also know that regiments, HOMEX and BAPU trading all had accounts with Standard Bank. So in 2014, these, these massive deposits of between 1 to 20 million start going into the HOMEX account. Um, and that then continues unabated for about three years. And it's not, well, we don't know if it was picked up by by Standard Bank, but certainly Standard Bank didn't action it. The Financial Intelligence Center didn't action it. The Reserve Bank didn't action it. So this money was being freely laundered from 2014 onwards. We only see Standard Bank pick up on this in 2017 when there are a whole lot of adverse media reports that start coming out in the press in about 2017 around regiments. And at that point, Standard Bank saw fit to call regiments into account and, as I understand, after that reported the the matter and, I think, closed the accounts. Now, the question is, if they have all these wonderful algorithms and they have this team that's dedicated and constantly monitoring as it's supposed to do under legislation, and if they all have this fantastic... Understanding of the legislation that governs them. What were they doing between 2014 and 2017? I don't buy the explanation that this was a mere a mere oversight. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have we don't have the answers. You know, we, those those questions weren't asked at the Zondo Commission, and and, and we didn't receive any um, any clarity. But I I also just want to say, Mike, that something that I I find repulsive actually is the fact that. Standard Bank, on their own version, waited until there were negative media reports. In other words, the trigger for Standard Bank was when it was going to incur reputational risk. That suddenly was worthy of interrogation. Mm. But what of all the red flags that they must have picked up on in those other three to four years?
2: You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.